Chapter 3 of Vandiver and the Brute. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ian Quinlan. Vandiver and the Brute by Frank Norris. Chapter 3 Vandiver had decided at lunch that day that he would not go back to work at his studio in the afternoon, but would stay at home instead, and read a very interesting story about two men who had bought a wrecked opium shop for fifty thousand dollars, and had afterward discovered that she contained only a few tins of the drug. He was curious to see how it turned out. The studio was a long way downtown, the day was a little cold, and he felt that he would enjoy a little relaxation. Anyhow, he meant to stay at home and put in the whole afternoon on a good novel. But even when he had made up his mind to do this, he did not immediately get out his book and settle down to it. After lunch he loitered about the house while his meal digested, feeling very comfortable and contented. He strummed his banjo a little, and played over upon the piano the three pieces he had picked up. Two were polkas, and the third, the air of a topical song. He always played the three together, and in the same sequence. Then he strolled up to his room and brushed his hair for a while, trying to make it lie very flat and smooth. After this he went out to look at Mr. Corkle, the terrier, and let him run a bit in the garden. Then he felt as though he must have a smoke, and so went back to his room and filled his pipe. When it was going well, he took down his book and threw himself into a deep leather chair, only to jump up again to put on his smoking jacket. All at once he became convinced that he must have something to eat while he read, and so went to the kitchen and got himself some apples and a huge slice of fresh bread. Ever since Vandiver was a little boy he had loved fresh bread and apples. Through the windows of the dining-room he saw Mr. Corkle digging up great holes in the geranium beds. He went out and abused him, and finally let him come back into the house and took him upstairs with him. Then at last he settled down to his novel, in the very comfortable leather chair before a little fire, for the last half of August is cold in San Francisco. The room was warm and snug, the fresh bread and apples were delicious, the good tobacco in his pipe purred like a sleeping kitten, and his novel was interesting and well-written. He felt calm and soothed and perfectly content, and took in the pleasure of the occasion with the lazy complacency of a drowsing cat. Vandiver was self-indulgent. He loved these sensuous pleasures. He loved to eat good things. He loved to be warm. He loved to sleep. He hated to be bored and worried. He liked to have a good time. At about half-past four o'clock he came to a good stopping-place in his book. The two men had got to quarrelling, and his interest flagged a little. He pushed Mr. Corkle off his lap, and got up yawning, and went to the window. Vandiver's home was on California Street, not far from Franklin. It was a large frame house of two stories. All the windows in the front were bay. The front door was directly in the middle between the windows of the parlour and those of the library while over the vestibule was a sort of balcony that no one ever thought of using. The house was set in a large, well-kept yard. The lawn was pretty, an enormous eucalyptus tree grew at one corner. Nearer to the house were magnolia and banana trees growing side by side with pines and firs. Hummingbirds built in these, and one could hear their curious little warbling mingling with the hoarse chip of the English sparrows which nested under the eaves. The backyard was separated from the lawn by a high fence of green latticework. The hens and chickens were kept here, and two roosters, one of which crowed every time a cable-car passed the house. On the door, cut through the lattice fence, was a sign. Look out for the dog. 
Close to the unused barn stood an immense windmill with enormous arms. When the wind blew in the afternoon, the sails whirled about at a surprising speed, pumping up water from the artisan well sunk beneath. There was a small conservatory where the orchards were kept. Altogether, it was a charming place. However, adjoining it was a huge vacant lot with cows in it. It was full of dry weeds and heaps of ashes, while around it was an enormous fence painted with signs of cigars, patent bitters, and soap. Vandiver stood at a front window and looked out on a rather dreary prospect. The inevitable afternoon trades had been blowing hard since three, strong and brisk from the ocean, driving hard through the Golden Gate and filling the city with a taint of salt. Now the fog was coming in. Vandiver could see great patches of it sweeping along between him and the opposite houses. All the eucalyptus trees were dripping, and occasionally there came the faint moan of the foghorn out at the heads. He could see up the street for nearly two miles as it climbed over Knob Hill. It was almost deserted. A cable car now and then crawled up and down its length, and at times a delivery wagon rattled across it. But that was about all. On the opposite sidewalk two boys and a girl were coasting downhill on their roller skates and their brake wagons. The cable in its slot kept up an incessant burr and clack. The whole view was rather forlorn, and Vandiver turned his back on it, taking up his book again. About five o'clock his father came home from his office. "'Hello,' said he, looking into the room. "'Aren't you home a little early today? Ah, "'I thought you weren't going to bring that dog into the house any more. "'I wish you wouldn't, son. He gets hair and fleas about everywhere.' "'All right, Governor,' answered Vandiver. "'I'll take him out. Come along, Cork.' "'But aren't you home earlier than usual today?' persisted his father as Vandiver got up. "'Yes,' said Vandiver. "'I guess I am, a little.' After supper the same evening, when Vandiver came downstairs, drawing on his gloves, his father looked over his paper, saying pleasantly, "'Well, where are you going to-night?' "'I'm going to see my girl,' said Vandiver, smiling. Then, foreseeing the usual question, he added, "'I'll be home about eleven, I guess.' "'Got your latch-key?' asked the old gentleman, as he always did when Vandiver went out. "'Yep,' called back Vandiver, as he opened the door. "'I'll not forget it again. Good night, Governor.' Vandiver used to call on Turner Ravis about twice a week. People said they were engaged. This was not so. Vandiver had met Miss Ravis some two years before. For a time the two had been sincerely in love with each other, and though there was never any talk of marriage between them, they seemed to have some sort of tacit understanding. But by this time Vandiver had somehow outgrown the idea of marrying Turner. He still kept up the fiction, persuaded that Turner must understand the way things had come to be. However, he was still very fond of her. She was a frank, sweet-tempered girl and very pretty, and it was delightful to have her care for him. Vandiver could not shut his eyes to the fact that young Haight was very seriously in love with Turner, but he was sure that Turner preferred him to his chum. She was too sincere, too frank, too conscientious to practice any deception on him. There was quite a party at the Ravis's house that evening when Vandiver arrived. Young Haight was there, of course, and Charlie Geary. Besides Turner herself there was Henrietta Vance, a stout pretty girl with pop-eyes and a little nose, who laughed all the time and who was very popular. These were all part of Vandiver's set. They called each other by their first names and went everywhere together. Almost every Saturday evening they got together at Turner's house and played whist or euchre, or sometimes even poker. Just for love, as Turner said. When Vandiver came in they were all talking at the same time disputing about a little earthquake that had occurred the night before. 
Henrietta Vance declared that it had happened early in the morning. "'Wasn't it just about midnight, Van?' cried Turner. "'I don't know,' answered Vandiver. "'It didn't wake me up. I didn't even know there was one.' "'Well, I know I heard our clock strike two just about half an hour afterward,' protested young Haight. "'Oh, it was almost five o'clock when it came,' cried Henrietta Vance. "'Well, now you're all off,' said Charlie Geary. "'I know just when she quaked to the fraction of a minute, because it stopped our hall clock at just a little after three. They were silent. It was an argument which was hard to contradict. By and by, young Haight declared, "'There must have been two of them, then, because—how about whist or euchre, or whatever it is to be?' said Charlie Geary, addressing Turner, and interrupting in an annoying way that was peculiar to him. "'Can't we start it now that Van has come?' They played euchre for a while, but Geary did not like the game, and by and by suggested poker. "'Well, if it's only just for love,' said Turner, "'because, you know, Mama doesn't like it any other way.' At ten o'clock Geary said, "'Let's quit after this hand-round. What do you say?' The rest were willing, and so they all took account of their chips after the next deal. Geary was protesting against his poor luck. Honestly, he hadn't held better than three tens more than twice during the evening. It was Henrietta Vance who took in everything. Did one ever see anything to beat her luck? The funniest thing. They began to do tricks with the cards. Young Haight showed them a very good trick, by which he could make the pack break every time at the ace of clubs. Vandiver exclaimed, "'Lend me a silk hat and ninety dollars, and I'll show you the queerest trick you ever saw.' which sent Henrietta Vance off into shrieks of laughter. Then Geary took the cards out of young Haight's hands, asking them if they knew this trick. Turner said yes, she knew it, but the others did not, and Geary showed it to them. It was interminable. Henrietta Vance chose a card and put it back into the deck. Then the deck was shuffled and divided into three piles. After this Geary made a mental calculation, selected one of these piles, shuffled it, and gave it back to her, asking her if she saw her card in it then more shuffling and dividing until their interest and patience were quite exhausted. When Geary finally produced a jack of hearts and demanded triumphantly if that was her card, Henrietta began to laugh and declared that she had forgotten what card she had chose. Geary said he would do the trick all over for her. At this, however, they all cried out, and he had to give it up, very irritated at Henrietta's stupidity. Vexed at the ill success of this first trick, he retired a little from the conversation, puzzling over the cards, thinking out new tricks. Every now and then he came back among them, going about from one to another, holding out the deck and exclaiming, "'Choose any card! Choose any card!' After a while they all adjourned to the dining-room, and Turner and Vandiver went out into the kitchen, foraging amongst the drawers and shelves. They came back, bringing with them a box of sardines, a tin of pâté, three quart bottles of blue-ribbon beer, and what Vandiver called devilish ham sandwiches. "'Now do we want tamales to go with these?' said Turner, as she spread the lunch on the table. Henrietta Vance cried out joyfully at this, and young Haight volunteered to go out to get them. "'Get six, Turner cried out after him. "'Henrietta can always eat two. Hurry up, and we won't eat till you get back.' While he was gone, Turner got out some half-dozen glasses for their beer. "'Do you know,' she said as she set the glasses on the table, "'the funniest thing happened this morning to Mama." It was at breakfast. She had just drunk a glass of water and was holding the glass in her hand like this. Turner took one of the thin beer glasses in her hand to show them how, and was talking to Pa, when all at once the glass broke right straight around a ring, just below the brim, you know, and fell all... On a sudden, Turner uttered a shrill exclamation. The others started up. 
the very glass she held in her hand at the moment cracked and broke in precisely the manner she was describing. A narrow ring snapped from the top, dropping on the floor, breaking into a hundred bits. Turner drew in a long breath, open-mouthed, her hand in the air still holding the body of the glass that remained in her fingers. They all began to exclaim over the wonder. "'Well, did you ever in all your life?' shouted Miss Vance, breaking into a peal of laughter. Geary cried out, "'Caesar's ghost!' and Vandiver swore under his breath. "'If that isn't the strangest thing I ever saw!' cried Turner. "'Isn't that funny? Why, oh, I'm going to try it with another glass!' But the second glass remained intact. Geary recovered from his surprise and tried to explain how it could happen. "'It was the heat from your fingers, and the glass was cold, you know,' he said again and again. But the strangeness of the thing still held them. Turner set down the glass with the others and dropped into a chair, letting her hands fall in her lap, looking into their faces, nodding her head and shutting her lips. "'Ah, no,' she said after a while. "'That is funny. It kind of scares one.' She was actually pale. "'Oh, there's Dolly Haight!' cried Henrietta Vance as the doorbell rang. They all rushed to the door, running and scrambling, eager to tell the news. Young Haight stood bewildered on the doormat in the vestibule, his arms full of brown paper packages, while they recounted the marvel. They all spoke at once, holding imaginary beer-glasses toward him in their outstretched hands. Geary, however, refused to be carried away by their excitement, and one heard him from time to time repeating, between their ejaculations, "'It was the heat from her fingers, you know, when the glass was cold.' Young Haight was confused, incredulous. He could not at first make out what had happened. "'Well, just come and look at the broken glass on the floor,' shouted Turner decisively, dragging him into the dining-room. They waited, breathless, to hear what he would say. He looked at the broken glass, and then into their faces. Then he suddenly exclaimed, "'Ah, you're joking me!' "'No, honestly,' protested Vandiver. "'That was just the way it happened.' It was some little time before they could get over their impression of queerness, but by and by Geary cried out that the tamales were getting cold. They settled down to their lunch, and the first thing young Haight did was to cut his lip on the edge of the broken glass. Turner had set it down with the others, and he had inadvertently filled it for himself. It was a trifling cut. Turner fetched some court plaster, and his lip was patched up. For all that, it bled quite a little. He was very embarrassed. He kept his handkerchief to his mouth and told them repeatedly to go on with their lunch and not to mind him. As soon as they were eating and drinking they began to be very jolly, and Vandiver was especially good-humoured and entertaining. He made Henrietta Vance shout with laughter by pretending that the olive in his tamale was a green hen's egg. About half-past ten young Haight rose from the table, saying he thought it was about time to say good-night. "'Don't be in a hurry,' said Turner. "'It's early yet.' After that, however, they broke up very quickly. Before he left, Vandiver saw Turner in the dining-room alone for a minute. "'Will I see you at church tomorrow?' he asked as she held his overcoat for him. "'I don't know, Van,' she answered. "'You know Henrietta is going to stay all night with me, and I think she will want me to go home with her tomorrow morning and then stay to dinner with her. But I'm going to early communion tomorrow morning. Why can't you meet me there?' "'Why, I can,' answered Vandiver, settling his collar. I should like to very much. Well, then, she replied, you can meet me in front of the church at half-past seven o'clock. Hey, break away there, cried Geary from the front door. Come along, Van, if you are going with us. Turner let Vandiver kiss her before they joined the others. I'll see you at seven-thirty tomorrow morning, he said as he went away. The three young men went off down the street, arm in arm, smoking their cigars and cigarettes. 
As soon as they were alone, Charlie Geary began to tell the other two of everything he had been doing since he had last seen them. "'Well, sir,' he said as he took an arm of each, "'well, sir, I had a fine sleep last night. Went to bed at ten and never woke up till half-past eight this morning. Ah, you bet I needed it, though. I've been working like a slave this week. You know, I take my law examinations in about ten days. I'll pass all right. I'm right up to the handle and everything. I don't believe the judge could stick me anywhere in the subject of torts.' "'Say, boys,' said Vandiver, pausing and looking at his watch. "'It isn't very late. Let's go downtown and have some oysters.' "'That's a good idea,' answered young Haight. "'How about you, Charlie?' Geary said he was willing. "'Ah,' he added, "'you ought to have seen the beefsteak I had this evening at the grill room.' And as they rode downtown he told them of the steak in question. "'I had a little mug of ale with it, too, and a dish of salad. Ah, it went great.' They decided, after some discussion, that they would go to the Imperial. End of chapter 3